Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Everywhere we turn, someone is promising to finally give us the satisfaction and happiness we long for. Yet from advertisements to political campaigns, these promises so often remain unfulfilled. We know God makes promises too, but do you ever wonder if He'll actually keep them? Join us for our Christmas series, Fulfilled, as we discover how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to us, and how the promises He kept then fulfill our deepest longings now. I think we are doing the month of December all wrong, right? It's called the most wonderful time of the year. There's supposed to be happiness and joy and delight, and I think we're doing it all wrong. You hear the song, have yourself a merry little Christmas, may your heart be bright, but I think we're actually lying to ourselves about how to get there. I know a few of you are probably like, Jeremy, uh, is your name Scrooge uh, today? This is a happy season, right? Some of the children are a little nervous that if I say Christmas is canceled, the parents are going to believe that and there's not going to be presents under the tree. No, no, that's, I'm not going there completely. But I think that we are missing really what I think the weeks leading up to Christmas are really intended to do in our lives. The season of Advent has an ambition and it has an aim to produce something in our hearts and our lives. And I think we're I think we're kind of missing that. I think we're, we're lying to ourselves about how we get to the, the joy and the happiness and the gladness of Christmas Day, right? We, we should celebrate that Christ the Savior has come into the world, that, that we are rescued from our sins by his life for us, his death and his resurrection. We should rejoice that God is with us, but I think we should wait till Christmas Day to start rejoicing. So yes, I am saying no more Christmas music until Christmas Eve. No more happiness until we get there. Let's take down the decorations and put them up on Christmas Eve. Because I think that Advent has something a little bit deeper for us. Maybe because not everybody is having a Merry Christmas. If we were to do a survey around the room this morning, I think we would find that there's, there's hardship, there's, there's pain, there's sadness. Not everyone is enjoying the traditions of the year, the mirth and the gladness of the season. I think we're afraid of maybe ignoring reality, or the potential is there that we're ignoring reality. One study in 2014 by the National Alliance on Mental Illness found that 64% of people with a mental illness said the holidays make the condition even worse. Just a few years later, in 2021, another survey showed that three in five Americans feel their mental health is negatively impacted by the holidays. I think it could be. Think about this year, the financial stress is high. Every year, you've got to buy presents for everybody, and so you're deducting and taking out money from your accounts or maybe putting it on credit to buy things for somebody else. And with inflation this year, it gets all the greater and harder. How do we do that? Many of us face this holiday season with the loss of a loved one. Perhaps over the last year, the loss of a job or a marriage or a child. Loss, loss abounds in our lives. And so we come to the end of the year where those people and those relationships aren't there with us when they normally were. And we feel pain in that. The season for many is not the most wonderful time of the year. And I think that's okay. In fact, I might even say that should be preferred. 
Now, here's why. If we have a real sense of loss in our lives, if we get a real sense of pain and have a real sense of brokenness, then perhaps we can get what the purpose of Advent is intended to do. These four weeks leading up to Christmas are intended to help us grow in anticipation and hope. They're intended to build within our lives desire for resolution, desire for salvation. But I think we shortcut it. We put in all the happiness, all the merriment, all the Trader Joe's JoJo cookies with the peppermint and the chocolate that we can get in there. All the goodness before Christmas Day, and then Christmas Day comes and we're like, oh, that's nice too. We don't really build desire. We don't have a sense of how dark it is so that the light can be all the greater. And that's why I think we're observing this season incorrectly. We're getting more and more complacent, more and more comfortable with the things of this world rather than seeing the Christ who has come for us and who is coming again and how He is our only hope. So I know now you're thinking like, yeah, Jeremy, you really are Scrooge uh, this year. Really is going to be a downer today, isn't it? We're going to immerse ourselves in, this, in the worst story, I think, in the whole Christmas narrative. I mean, the story that nobody talks about. Because we've got to confront the pain of our world. And if we, if we ignore it, if we, if we don't look at the pain in our world, if we don't look at the sorrow and the evil that's there, Christmas is just going to be fake. It's going to be like Buddy the Elf walking around saying, hey, just sing and be happy. And nobody in their heart is going to be able to recognize and deal with truly what's going on. We won't have real hope. But if we looked at our mourning our sorrow in the light of Christ's coming, I believe that one of the deep longings of our heart, the longing for a Savior, the longing for hope, that longing would be answered. So we're going to go to Matthew's Gospel again. Jen read this passage for us that is really, really horrific. The story of the, the murder of the holy innocents, as it's called. And it's part of the Advent story, it's here, but it's intended I think Matthew tells it and intends it to answer the deep need that Christ provides in our need for hope. And so as we work through this story this morning, we're going to see how do we move from a state of mourning and sorrow and grief and pain, how do we move us from a state of that to a state of hope in our lives? How does, how does what Advent should truly be, I think, become for us a way to deeply reflect on and grow in the hope of Jesus Christ. Well, this story has some movements for us. We have, to, we have to grow ourselves, as it were, and so we have to move from our state of mourning, from the pain, into the hope that God has for us. And, and the story takes us through these four movements uh, with us today. So I want to walk us through these so we see how we can move from mourning to hope. And to do that, we've got to start at the very darkest part of the story, the worst place. And that is the reality of evil. The reality of evil. This first movement from mourning to hope is the acknowledgement that evil exists. And it's the acknowledgement that evil exists and it's real and it's ruining everything. Evil is in the world. And this is the part of the Christmas story, the nativity story, the, the infancy story of Jesus that everybody skips over. We don't tell this part of the story. 
I mean, can you imagine going to one of those living nativity uh, opportunities or outreaches, the ones like Troy has every year, and seeing this scene there? I'm going to suggest it for Troy to do next year just to capture that. Look with me at what happens here in verse 16 of chapter 2 of Matthew's gospel. Matthew says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that, all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Now, Herod is an intensely wicked man filled with all kinds of ambition and rage and paranoia, the classic narcissist filled with a lust for control and power. If you've been following this series with us, and let me just backtrack just a little bit, uh, Matthew chapter 2, Matthew introduces us to these, these magi of the east who come, and they come to Jerusalem, they come looking for the, chi- the Christ child, the, the one born king of the Jews, and they go to the palace, and they go to Herod, and they say, where is he? Expecting him to be there, Jesus, the, the, the Christ, to be in that palace. But Herod's like, oh, no babies around here, what are you talking about? And so he gathers the scribes and the religious leaders, and they say, well, the Christ was to be born in Bethlehem. And so Herod says to the wise men, well, go down to Bethlehem, find out his address, tell me who his parents are, go do whatever you came to do with him, and then come back and tell me where he lives. I'd like to go down and worship him too. Except that's not Herod's agenda at all. Verse 13 says that Herod was about to search for the child to destroy him. Herod had death on his mind. So the wise men go. To Bethlehem, they find Jesus, the Holy Family, they worship him. And then an angel says, Don't go back to Herod. Go another way. And so they follow that word. They don't return to Jerusalem. They don't come back to Herod. They don't tell him where he is. And Herod finds out he's been tricked, he's been fooled. The wise men carry no word for him. They don't even show up. They ghost him completely. And as is typical of Herod's life, he becomes furious. Herod was so evil, so intensely wicked, that he, he killed one of his ten wives, three of his sons, and his brother-in-law. And when he finds that he can't have access to the king of the Jews to put him to death, he says, well, let's just do genocide. Let's just wipe out a whole village and their children. Let's just kill every boy. And so he begins to ascertain and figure out, okay, how old would this Christ child be? Well, he would be two years old or younger, given the uh, information the wise men had given. And so he just sends a murder squad down to the city. Every, every two-year-old or younger boy, just put him down with a sword. Massacre. Kill them all. Slaughter them. Now, we hear this in this story, and we go, that is horrific. It's terrible. Infanticide, just wiping out an entire generation of male children in a community. And the thing is, Matthew could have skipped over this part of the story. No no other gospel writer tells it, yet Matthew puts it here in the story of Jesus for a very specific reason. He draws out the darkest part of the story, even emphasizes it to bring us to the reality of evil. Matthew brings us to the darkest night of the year, full of evil, and it's good that he does this. If we're going to receive hope, then we have to know truly how dark things are. Fleming Rutledge, in her book, The Once and Future Coming of Jesus, she writes that more than any other time in the church's calendar, Advent forces us to look at the dark side of ourselves. 
This story just puts a pause on the nativity scene. It's all its beauty, all its pleasantry, all its peace, and says there's an ugly reality that surrounds it. Murder, evil, wickedness. And for the story of Jesus to bring hope, it can't skip over the evil and the brokenness and the oppression, even the darkness of our world. If we believe that Jesus has come to do something about the evil and the sin of our world, then we have to begin to acknowledge the reality of that sin and evil in our world. So what kind of world was Jesus born into? He was born into the world in which those in power would kill children to maintain control. And the sad thing is nothing has changed today. We, we can't gloss over this. We shouldn't sweep this story under the rug. Our world is still filled with this kind of violence and evil and the viciousness of it. I know that every Christmas time, you've probably heard the song a hundred times by now, you hear Lennon and Ono sing, Happy Xmas, War is Over, and it attempts to inoculate us or slide away the pain and evil of the world. We just decide and declare, war is over if you want it. But let's be real. Evil and murder, oppression, hate, greed, sin, they still dominate our times part of our fabric of life. And yet we come to Christmas and we attempt to make everything happy and joyful and we don't want to feel the pain and the agony of the real world. Friends, we cannot ignore this evil. And if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit we're more like Herod than we'd like to believe. Even G.K. Chesterton he answered when someone asked him, what's the greatest problem in the world? He simply wrote back and said, I am. And it's true of all of us. Evil and sin are our reality. So coming to the story of Jesus shouldn't be a means for us to walk away from evil or to hide it or to disregard it. It should be a place for us to begin to confront it and look it straight on in the eye, to acknowledge it. So I would ask you this morning, what pain are you feeling? What sorrow is in your life? What despair is there because of sin, maybe the sins that you've committed or the sins that have been committed against you? Will you, will you acknowledge those things? Those are the questions we must start with and own and even identify because it's as we face the reality of evil that we can begin to look for hope. As we confront evil... From it, we can see hope that comes from Christ. So, so we see the reality of evil. It's right there in front of us, but, but this is a movement there. We're, we're not going to just stay stuck in the reality of evil. We've got to move into a way to embrace it and to move forward. And that's where the second movement of the story here is here. It's the role of lament. It's for us to, to take our sorrow, to take our anger, to take our pain, and to take it to the right place the best place in the universe. Now, Matthew sees, once again, the larger and the bigger picture in all of this. He sees the unfolding story of the Bible, the unfolding story of God's redemptive plan. And so he, he once again, connects with an Old Testament prophet. This time, he picks Jeremiah's words. He says, I want you to see how what Jeremiah has proclaimed, what God has proclaimed through Jeremiah, is fulfilled in Jesus. And when he, in his coming, in Jesus' coming, what the Old Testament Scripture says are absolutely true. And so he pulls from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 17. 
Matthew quotes it this way. He says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This chapter that Matthew is referring to, Jeremiah 31, it's an incredible chapter about the grace of God. It's it's a profound reality of God's promises, of His grace and His love. God is speaking to the exiles of Israel that have been sent and deported to Babylon, to those who've been scattered by the Assyrian enemy. They're all, Israel's gone and lost. And in Jeremiah 31, he speaks through the prophet and he says, guess what? Good news, you're coming back home. There will be rejoicing. There will be celebration. Let me just take you to a few of these verses in Jeremiah 31. First of all, Jeremiah 31, 31, God makes a new covenant with Israel. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In verse 34, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. I mean, how incredibly good news is that? God's saying, I'll wipe out your sin. I'll forgive you. Your iniquity erased. You will be in close relationship with me. You won't even have to teach each other about me because you'll all know me together. That's a great promise of hope and renewal. Or or one more verse in Jeremiah 31. The one right before the verse we'll look at in verse 15. Jeremiah 31, 14. God says, I will feast the souls of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. I mean, that's a great promise. What a beautiful banquet. That's like, a, that's like a Christmas Day meal. Like all the food is out. Everybody is fat and happy and satisfied. Jesus says, that's what I'm offering for you. That's what, that's what I have for you. So we feel all this goodness. We feel this forgiveness. We feel this new relationship. But right in the middle of all of that, verse 15 of Jeremiah 31, God drops this statement. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. It's it's peculiar here because it, it feels like everybody's celebrating, everybody's worshiping, everybody's enjoying, everything is new and right, and yet there's this one individual over in the corner who's saying, no, I can't enter in the party. I can't join the celebration. You don't know the pain and the loss that I've had. And, and God focuses in on her, calls her Rachel. If you remember the Old Testament story, Rachel was the beloved wife of Jacob. She was the mother of several children. She died in childbirth. And she wanted to name her son Benjamin. My sorrow is full. Jacob changed the son's name. But Rachel is the representation of all mothers who have lost their children. And and here she stands in for uh, for Israel as they were deported and sent away in the town of Ramah, which was six miles north of Jerusalem. It was the last place the exile stopped on their way to Babylon. It's a city of mourning. It's a city of sorrow. And there in the city of sorrow is a woman of sorrow crying out because her children are gone. They're lost. She refuses comfort because her children are no more. So the spotlight is there on her. And Matthew picks up this verse and he says, that's what Bethlehem felt like that day. 
after Herod's goons had swept through and killed all these young babies, these young boys, weeping, loud lamentation, refusing to be in on God's party and celebration because their children are no more. Now, God doesn't punish Rachel for that lamentation. He spotlights it to say, you too can lament. It it may not all be merry and bright for you in your life right now. This season may be one of hardship and suffering, and God says, I see that, and it's okay. Your sorrow can be there. Lament. We're invited into the role of lament, which is to take our sorrow, our suffering, our pain because of the sins we've committed or the sins that have been committed against us, to take all of it to God and say, God, here it is. My my agony is in front of you. Would you do something? Friends, it's right and good to lament evil and brokenness, even in the midst of great joy. And that's what it is. We, We take our sorrow, our pain, our brokenness, and we take it to the Lord. And we say, this is the reality of evil in, the, in my world. Lord, you do something with it. Hear it. Hear my cries. Hear my pain. As much as we want to look back on the year behind us and celebrate and acknowledge all the good things, and as much as we want to forget the bad things and the painful things, we can't truly experience the greatness of hope and the hope of Christ coming if we don't lament the loss. Tish Harrison Warren writes in her book, Prayer in the Night, for those who work or watch or weep, grief is stubborn. It will make itself heard or we will die trying to silence it. But if we don't face it directly, it comes out sideways in ways that aren't always recognizable as grief, explosive anger, uncontrollable anxiety, compulsive shallowness, brooding bitterness, unchecked addiction. And yet there's a vehicle for us to handle our grief. It's lament. It's the vehicle to take our grief to God and to have Him address it. That's why Scripture calls us to weep with those who weep. It's to, as a a family, as a community, come around those who are suffering and in sorrow. To come around the Rachels of our lives and to hear their lament and weep with them. So I would encourage you today to take some time if, you, if you're one of these people, one of these Rachels that, that you're looking at it and going, Christmas stinks. This whole month, like, I can't put on a fake face anymore. Lament. Acknowledge the evil. And, and today, go before the Lord with your lamentation. Go before the Lord with your sorrow. Go before the Lord with your suffering and say, here's the pain. He's big enough to handle it. He's okay with you crying out and saying, I can't be comforted right now. He will hear it and receive it. Take that pain to him. Take those things to him. And and church family together, let's let's acknowledge the pain exists among us. Let's let's join in the lamentation of others at our campus and at our church by drawing near to those who have lost children or marriages or family members or jobs or, or any other loss that's a result of living in a fallen world. We can draw near in their sorrow. So I invite you to weep with someone who's weeping this summer or this this season. Don't try and brush it under the rug. Don't put a plastic veneer over it. Confront the grief with the Lord. So we start with the reality of evil, and we see now the vehicle that God gives us to address or to at least express our hearts in the midst of that evil through lamentation, through lament. But from that then comes a new thing, the emergence of hope. 
I want to stay here in Jeremiah's passage for just a moment because God answers the lamentation of those who have lost and those who grieve the pain of that loss. He, he, he speaks continually. He, he says further to Rachel, to, to the suffering of that time in verse 16. He says, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. Now, God isn't callous here and saying, well, stop crying, quit throwing yourself a pity party and get on with the celebration. God says, okay, the day is going to come when the tears are going to dry up, when you can stop your weeping and your eyes will be dry and a reward will come. The sons that you've lost, effectively, he says, they will come back from the land of the enemy. God is promising to Israel that the exile is not the last word of them. Their grief and loss is not the entirety of the story. God promises a reward, return home, return from the land of the enemy. And more importantly, he promises a beautiful future. He says in verse 17, there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. God has a greater plan. The children will come back. Hope will emerge. The sorrow that you feel now, it's not the last statement. And that's what Advent tells us. There is sorrow now, but Christ is coming, and things will be made right. Hope can emerge. And so the story is paralleled in the story of Jesus, because immediately following the words of grief and loss, hope hits the scene. Now, it comes in a peculiar way. In verse 19, we hear the weeping, the lamentation, and the refusal to be comforted. Bethlehem's weight is heavy and the sorrow of their loss. And then Matthew says, just in a few words, but when Herod died. Now, we could read on and read real fast past that and go, okay, another guy off the scene. But that little phrase is intended to give us hope. That little phrase is intended to, to stop us and to go, God is doing something here. And here's why, two ways. First of all, when Herod died is a good thing because now Herod stands to face the judge. He's had all the power, he's had all the control, he's done whatever he wanted, whatever he deemed best, even evil acts of murder, atrocities, and now he's dead. And he stands before God, the judge. Death brings us face to face with the justice of God. All the atrocities, all the evil, all the oppressive things that we do and others do against us, they will be accounted for. The scripture says in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for a man or woman to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Here's the reality of living in a fallen world. We will all stand before the judge one day. So these, these families that had their infant sons put to death that, that day that lived in Bethlehem, they could essentially effectively put their head on the pillow at night knowing that Herod's death meant he was squarely face to face with the judge of the universe and he would answer for his atrocities. Friends, the, the, the good news is in some way that justice will always be served. Now, yes, justice will be served on the last day when Christ comes again and every person will give an account. Justice will be served. But the better news is that for those who are in Christ, the hope that we have is that as we trust Christ, God's justice has already been served. Jesus Christ himself took God's justice and wrath 
All of our sins, all of our atrocities that we committed against others, all the ways that we have hurt and broken our relationships and broken fellowship and hurt one another, Jesus has paid for on His cross. And so the wrath of God isn't pointed at His children, but there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. God's wrath and His justice has been poured out on His Son on the cross. So as we read about Herod's death, we go, yes, justice comes. Justice has been served. And secondly, hope emerges because there's safety. For the Holy Family, when they read and they hear that Herod has died, they can move forward to where, and come home. The verse says, when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. The family can return. Safety is there. The sun shines. Now, I'm contractually obligated as a preacher to use uh, at least one Lord of the Rings illustration once a year. So I just want to catch this. Remember that scene in the two towers at Helm's Deep? Everyone's barricaded in. The night has fallen. The orc army is pounding away. They breach the gates. They're storming in, and it looks like everything's about to be lost. The dark night is settled in. The rain is falling. It's just the dreariest, darkest scene. And the only good that can seem to be imagined from anybody is to die a noble death in battle. Yet, if you remember, Gandalf the wizard, he, he gave a word to Aragorn. He said, look to my coming on the fifth day. At dawn, look to the east. And so it happens in the film where as the battle is almost lost, they remember it's the fifth day. And there as the sun rises over the ridge, as the light shines in, there's Gandalf on his horse. An army swooping down to defeat the darkness and to save the day. That's what the gospel provides. That's what Jesus provides, hope. There will always be hope that the things that are evil will be made right. The things that are broken will be made new. And that hope is anchored in Jesus himself. Jesus himself faced evil. He faced tyranny and oppression and sin head on. He was born in the midst of great wickedness. And he didn't hide from it. He didn't hide from the darkness. He went in and extinguished it. He went right to the darkness, taking our darkness and sin upon himself. The greatest atrocity in the universe wasn't that these infants were massacred in their hometown. The greatest atrocity in the universe is that the Holy One of God, Jesus the Christ, suffered on the cross for our sins. He took our blame. He took our shame and guilt. And He died in our place. And that is where victory was won. That's where hope emerges. A Savior has been given to us. And on the third day, He rose from the dead in glorious light and life so that if anyone trusts in Him, they can have this hope of light. In Christ, death doesn't get the last word. He's won the victory for all who trust in Him. He's come to save and to make all things new and right. And so to trust the gospel is to trust there is hope despite the reality of our sin. So we need to see the reality of evil and, and embrace and take up the role of lament so that we have the emergence of hope in our lives and then we can receive the fourth movement, the promise of return. 
Just as God's word to Israel in Jeremiah 31, 17 is a word of hope leading to return. So Jesus enacts that return. God promised Israel, remember this. He said, there is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. There is hope in the midst of darkness. There is hope in the midst of brokenness. Your children shall come back. A return that will occur and God will make all things right. So Jesus walks out this return to the land of Egypt. Again, back to our story in Matthew. Joseph receives the dream, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he did it. He rose and took the child and went to the land of Israel. And even though he heard more evil was there, Archelaus was reigning over Judea. This is Herod's son. Joseph received another word and he went to the district of Galilee. God has placed his Messiah, his son, in the exact right place to enact salvation and the promise of return for all who will trust in him. One New Testament scholar notes, Matthew's perspective, Jesus is understood as summarizing the whole experience of Israel as well as bringing it to fulfillment. All of God's promises are fulfilled in Christ who promises to get us home. The end of evil and suffering and death is ahead for all who trust in Christ and hope in Him. He will make all things new. And that's what Advent should do. It should remind us not merely of the first coming of Christ, not just Christmas Day, but of Jesus' second coming, when we will truly experience God with us as He makes all things right and new. The suffering and pain of this life will be answered and resolved. Things will be set to rights. We should remember again how the Scripture story ends. Revelation 21, 3 and 4, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That is our glorious future, friend. Because Christ has walked through it for us. That promise is for us today that we can experience in some part what we will experience one day fully. No more sorrow, no more grief, no more pain because God is with us. In Jesus, our mourning turns to hope. In Jesus, our mourning turns to hope. So so let me ask you and leave you with this question. Where do you need to see the story of Jesus showing up in your own life and in your own story? Where, Where are you facing the reality of sin and evil in your own life and heart? Maybe for just a moment this Advent season, we can stop pretending, stop covering up our pain with the holly and jolly, and just be honest about our experience. Just just open up our hearts to the pain that's there. Maybe for a moment we just need to pause the traditions and the trappings and grieve and lament and to cry out to, before God. And, and if we'll do that, friends, I believe that that is where we can truly see hope abound in our lives. Because we don't just sit in our lament, we see Christ has come for us. Jesus meets us in our pain to offer us his hope. So whatever need or pain you feel in this holiday season, know that Jesus steps right into the middle. He meets you in the middle, and he says, come and follow me. 
He invites, he says, come to you, every one of you who is weary and heavily burdened, and I'll give you rest. He says, take, take my burden upon you, take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He invites us to look deep into the heart of suffering and from that place see the hope that he brings in his death and resurrection. And then as you trust him, he guides you towards God's new creation where everything will be transformed one day. So this Advent, I wanna, this fourth Sunday Advent, I want to invite you to follow Christ. And as you would do, experience how your mourning can be turned to hope, to acknowledge the evil, to lament, and to see the hope of Christ who will come again and make all things new. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.